0: Th- thank you very much, and, and a very good morning to all of you. Uh, let me begin by saying that, uh, on behalf of myself and my TI colleagues here, and we are, we are quite a few of us here today, uh, that we're extremely delighted to be associated with the, uh, the establishment of this centre. Uh, and it has been mentioned that John Drasdale, our chairman, uh, is a patron and is a member of the management board. And we look forward to working with you uh, to make this a centre of excellence in anti-corruption, uh, and we hope, therefore, that it will help to strengthen the anti-corruption community in the UK uh, as well as internationally. So we look forward to a very productive collaboration in the future. Uh, Lord Faulkner has given us an extremely valuable overview of the bribery Act. I'm not going to speak about it, uh, but I just wanted to say, because TI, as you know, has for such a long time been campaigning for effective legislation, uh, that we would be extremely <coughs> Uh, concerned if any attempt were to be made uh, to delay the commencement of the Act or to dilute it. Yesterday I called uh, the office of Ken Clark and I received an, ass- an assurance uh, from one of his special political advisors uh, that he remains committed uh, to um, uh, fulfilling the commitment which the government made last year, which is to publish the guidance on adequate procedures by the end of this month Uh, and to see the Act commence in April, without any changes which would weaken it. Uh, Lord Faulkner mentioned the Evening Standard. Uh, I sent what I hope was a thunderous reply uh, to to the editor uh, two days ago. Uh, I don't know if if they will see sense. I get the impression that they are somehow impervious uh, to the arguments, all the arguments in favour of the Bribery Act, but let us see. Uh, Now, I have a rather difficult task, because I've been asked to give you a status report on global corruption in 25 minutes. And some would argue that it probably would take a lifetime uh, to do this. Uh, But I'm going to adopt a a modest approach. I hope you'll forgive me for that. Uh, I'll first share with you some recent findings uh, from TI's research, which give us glimpses about corruption uh, in different parts of the world, including in the UK. I'll then go on to highlight some key developments uh, in the anti-corruption field, And finally, I'll conclude by raising some questions in a rather self-critical vein, uh, as far as TI is concerned, about why anti-corruption efforts globally may not have been as successful as we might have hoped. Uh, Corruption in the public sector continues to be perceived to be a huge problem in many parts of the world. Of the 178 countries and territories surveyed in TI's uh, index published last year, nearly three-quarters scored below five on a scale from 10 to 0. Now that underscores the need to persevere with anti-corruption reforms and the best framework for that is the UN Convention Against Corruption and I'll say more on that later. Not surprisingly, countries with relatively higher incomes, resilient economies, uh, stable government, uh, and strong public and private institutions uh, tend to have scores well above 5. So we found that Denmark, Sweden, and Singapore tied for first place, with the scores of 9.3. At the other end of the spectrum, weak and fragile states, often with a legacy of conflict, continue to dominate the bottom rungs of the index. So we found Afghanistan, Myanmar, and Somalia, for instance, all with scores of less than two. But that doesn't necessarily mean that anti-corruption reforms are doomed to fail in these countries. For example, the work which TI's defense team Has been doing in Afghanistan during the past year shows that it is possible to work with committed officials in the Afghan military and the security, uh, the defense ministry, to promote anti corruption reforms, albeit very tentatively. So it it means that there is hope in, in, in these countries also. Now I hasten to underline that corruption is not a problem confined to the developing world as the experience of the UK shows and and also that of other developed countries. And it's interesting that in in the corruption perception index, Hong Kong, Barbados and Qatar were all ranked amongst the top 20 countries. Canada was the only G8 member to be ranked in the top 10. Italy languished in 67th place with a score of 3.9 just below Ghana, Samoa and Rwanda. And Russia had an abysmally low rank of 154th, with a score of 2.1. And remember, Russia is a member of the G8. But what about the UK, you will ask? The UK had a score of 7.6, and was ranked 20th globally, and 12th out of the 30 EU and Western European countries included in the index. Now, this is the UK's lowest score since TI began publishing the Corruption Perception Index in 1995, and we think that this significant decline over the years is the result of a combination of factors. Uh, The impact of what you will recall was termed as the loans for peerages scandal in in 2006, and then in that same year, the the premature termination of the SFO's investigation of uh, bribery allegations in connection with British Aerospace's uh, Al-Yamama defense contract with Saudi Arabia, and of course the subsequent criticism from the OECD's working group on bribery. And then more recently, we of course have had the MP's expenses scandal, which has had a hugely damaging impact on public confidence in the UK's political establishment. Now of course we've seen some improvements in other areas during the past year, uh, notably in terms of progress in enforcing the OECD uh, anti-bribery convention, uh, and of course the, the passage by Parliament of the Bribery Act. Of course. The commencement of the Act has been delayed, uh, and let us keep our fingers crossed and, ho- and hope that it comes into force in April. It may take some time for these developments to have an impact on the UK score, but I feel that the UK really should be aspiring to be in the top 10 in the CPI rankings, and its score last year should serve as a wake-up call to the government that, yes, it's very important to, to get the bribery Act uh, to commence in April, uh, and also to ensure that there will be adequate financial and human resources, to enforce the act properly. Uh, It's also a reminder that the MPs' expenses scandal has had a much uh, deeper and longer-lasting impact, and it now remains to be seen whether Parliament will genuinely embrace a new culture of transparency and accountability, in addition to the new rules for MPs' expenses, to which there continues to be some opposition in certain influential quarters. Another very revealing survey of global corruption is TI's annual Global Corruption Barometer, uh, which was published last year in December. Uh, That surveyed 90,000 people in 86 countries around the world. And I'd like to highlight some of the key findings. Now, there's a lot of statistical data here, but all this can be be accessed on the TI website. Uh, We found that corruption levels are perceived to have increased over the past three years, almost 60% of respondents reported that corruption levels in their countries had increased. Now, it's interesting that the biggest increase was perceived in North America and Western Europe, where about 70% of respondents felt that corruption had increased. Uh, We asked ourselves, why is this? And and we think it's perhaps because uh, of the impact of the global financial crisis, and, and possibly perceptions that the financial sector and regulatory authorities have not been effective in curbing unethical practices in the financial sector. Political parties are identified as the most corrupt institution around the world. Eight out of ten judge political parties as corrupt or extremely corrupt followed by the civil service, the judiciary, parliaments and the police. And over time public opinion about political parties appears to have deteriorated while opinions of the judiciary have improved. Experience of Petty bribery, sadly, is widespread and has remained unchanged compared to 2006. The police is identified as the most frequent recipient of bribes in in, in many parts of the world. And we found that in eight out of nine services that were assessed, such as education, health, and tax authorities, people with lower incomes are more likely to pay bribes than people with higher incomes. So, So corruption has a disproportionate impact on the poor. We found that government action to fight corruption is often seen as being ineffective. 50% of respondents consider their government's actions to be ineffective to stop corruption. And I found it rather surprising when I looked more closely at some of the data that in sub-Saharan Africa, a significantly high proportion of respondents, 44%, say that their governments have been effective in fighting corruption. And that figure goes up to 70% in Sierra Leone and Kenya, which I I found even more interesting. Uh, There is little trust in formal institutions to fight corruption. One in four people worldwide does not trust any particular institution to fight corruption. And interestingly, nearly one in four trust the media or the government the most to combat corruption. And more positively, it's widely believed that the public has a role to stop corruption and a willingness to report it when when it occurs. And we found that 70% of respondents think that ordinary people can make a difference in the fight against corruption, while about half could imagine themselves becoming involved. And 70% said that they would report a corrupt act if they saw one, so that's positive. Now, turning to the UK, uh, as part of a major research project which is ongoing on corruption in the UK, uh, whose findings will be published later this summer, We commissioned a national opinion survey, which was carried out by Gallup in July last year, and we also released its results last December. And I'd like to share with you some highlights of those findings, because they're very revealing. And they they seem to mirror some of the trends that were captured in in the Global Corruption Barometer. We found that 53% of respondents felt that corruption has increased in the UK, a little or a lot in the past three years. Only 3% believed that corruption had decreased. However, about 59% of respondents said that they had never been affected by corruption. 28% did not know, and 14% said that they had been affected. Now, that suggests to us that while many people may not have any direct experience of corruption, they are concerned that the problem does exist in particular institutions and sectors. We found that more than 90%, 90% said that they would like to report corruption if they experience or come across it, but only 30% knew where to report it, and that suggests perhaps that corruption is being underreported in the UK. 34% of respondents said that they did not trust anybody to fight corruption, and 19% said they did not know whom to trust. Political parties were perceived as the most corrupt institution followed by professional sport and parliament. The education system, the military and the NHS were perceived as being the least corrupt. And 48% of respondents did not think that the government was effective in tackling corruption. 26% felt the government was effective and about the same proportion was unsure. Now I think it's particularly interesting that globally and in the UK, mm-hmm. political parties are perceived to be the most corrupt institution and in the UK we think this can be explained of course by the recent scandals related to political party funding and MPs expenses but I think that there's a need for more research on on that topic but I suspect that in many other countries its corruption in political party funding both perceived and actual which is the major reason for the increasing public disdain for political parties and I think it's one of the paradoxes of our age that We've seen democracy spread and that's very welcome, but it's created a new set of challenges related to financing democratic institutions and processes. In many countries all over the world, both developed and developing. Increasing reliance on private sources for party funding and a blurring of the boundary between private and public finances has made political party extremely vulnerable to corruption. So I hope that that gives you uh, an overview Uh, however imperfect, of of some uh, key global uh, corruption trends, let me now turn to some developments in the anti-corruption field. Now, I'd like to start with some observations about UK law enforcement uh, against foreign bribery. Uh, After lagging behind for many years, behind its major uh, trading partners in in the G7, uh, we have actually seen in recent years, and especially in the past year, a significant increase in the number of foreign bribery cases in the UK. Now, if you count the number of cases cumulatively, since the OECD convention came into force in 1999, uh, the UK had zero cases in 1997, but today that number stands at 12, Uh, and that, that is progress. Now, one would hope to see that positive trend reinforced by the Bribery Act when it comes into force, but it remains to be seen how budget cutbacks and the proposed creation of a new institution into which the SFO is is going to be subsumed uh, will affect resources and the effectiveness of law enforcement. It would be a real tragedy if resources for law enforcement were to be reduced when at long last we have an anti-bribery law that is fit for purpose. In last year's annual assessment by TI of global progress in enforcing the OECD convention, Uh, The UK, because of its improving enforcement record, was placed in the category of active enforcers of the Convention. And the other countries in that category are the US, which by far has the largest number of cases, more than 160, uh, with others uh, like Germany, Italy, Switzerland, Denmark and Norway. Collectively, these countries represent 30% of world exports. But what about the other parties to the OECD Convention? Nine of them, including countries like France, Japan, and the Netherlands, have made modest enforcement efforts. But sadly, as many as 20 countries, including Canada, have done very little. And companies in these countries may feel little or no constraint about foreign bribery and may not even be aware of the convention. Now, the principal cause of this state of affairs, we find, is basically a lack of political will. And that manifests itself in different ways, in in the low priority, which is attached to resource allocation for enforcement, uh, but even worse, political interference in investigations and prosecutions of foreign bribery. So clearly, there is a need for sustained international diplomatic pressure to be exerted on such countries in order to level the playing field for countries who are making greater efforts, and I would include the UK in that category, provided the Bribery Act uh, comes into force, Uh, it's very important that we have this level playing field. And that in turn raises a question about some of the major emerging economies, especially the so-called BRIC countries, Russia, China, and India. Companies from these countries are, as you know, significant players in global markets, But Russia, China, and India are not parties to the OECD anti-bribery convention, although they are participating as observers in the deliberations of the OECD working group on bribery. So we need to, to exert more pressure on these countries to persuade them to accede to the OECD convention, or failing that, to adopt and enforce legislation that would be consistent with OECD standards. And TI's chair, Huguette Labelle, has recently written to the co-chairs of the G20's task force on anti-corruption, urging that all G20 countries, and they include the BRICS, should have such legislation in place by 2012. Now, I mentioned the UN Convention. Uh, It's the international community's most comprehensive, legally binding instrument to combat bribery and corruption. It has currently been ratified by 148 countries, And it has provisions that cover prevention and enforcement, as well as international cooperation to tackle bribery and corruption, and for cooperation in returning looted assets that have been corruptly looted by corrupt politicians and officials. You may recall that much international effort was expended uh, in 2009 in Doha uh, in negotiating a mechanism to review the implementation of, of the Convention. What emerged was a rather weak mechanism uh, and process to review each country's implementation uh, once every five years. Uh, The country that is under review can reject on-site visits by experts who who are undertaking uh, uh, the review. And and this is very disturbing. Country reports and recommendations may not be made publicly available. And from TI's point of view, this is probably even, even worse. Uh, Governments can also exclude civil society organizations from having an input into the review process. So this means that the UNCAC mechanism will be far less robust than the peer review mechanism uh, that is used to assess compliance with the OECD anti bribery Convention. Now, this is disappointing, but I think that the glass is still half full, and it doesn't mean that the UN Convention is toothless. It still provides a framework to press for anti-corruption reforms in countries where governance is weak, and and corruption levels are high. And over time, uh, I certainly hope that it will be possible to strengthen the review mechanism. Now TI and several other NGOs have formed a global coalition in support of UNCAC, and we'll be pressing for changes, uh, especially to ensure that there is greater transparency in the monitoring and review process. While legally binding uh, conventions like the UN Convention are crucial, Uh, We shouldn't ignore the important role of non-binding international initiatives that can also promote transparency and anti-corruption reforms. Now, there are a number of these, and I should mention the UN Global Compact, uh, to which I think some 9,000 companies are subscribed to. Uh, The 10th principle of the UN Global Compact uh, relates to anti-corruption. There's also the Kimberley process for certification of of diamonds to ensure that uh, conflict diamonds are not... Uh, making the to international markets. But I'd like to highlight uh, only one initiative, which is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. Uh, now, I know it has some critics, but it has made considerable progress since it was launched, and I think it's an initiative which does have teeth. And let me explain why. Now, just for the benefit of those who may not be familiar, uh, the basic underlying principle uh, for the initiative is that if countries, citizens in countries that are natural resource-rich but are socioeconomically poor because of corruption and economic mismanagement, had access to accurate information about government revenues from extractive industries, then they would be in a position to demand greater accountability from governments, thus helping, we would hope, to promote more productive uses of those resources for the wider public good. Since it was launched in 2002, EITI has grown into what I think is a pretty unique coalition which brings together governments, civil society, uh, the private sector, as well as international organizations. And today, uh, there are 28 countries who are so-called candidate countries, whose governments, in the view of EITI's international board, have committed to implement the so-called EITI principles and have also satisfied for sign-up indicators. Forty of the world's largest oil gas and mining companies, and 80 institutional investors support EITI. And about 300 NGOs worldwide, in the form of the Publish What You Pay Coalition, have come together uh, to support the initiative, and TI was a founder (coughs) member of of that coalition. Uh, I said that the initiative has teeth. Why? Because once a a country has attained candid status, it's got two years to be validated as a compliant country. And thus far, five countries have been certified as being compliant, Azerbaijan, Ghana, Liberia, Mongolia, and Timor-Leste. And six countries are close to being certified as compliant. Two countries, Equatorial Guinea and South Omi, were removed from EITI's list of candidate countries uh, last year because of their inability to meet certain deadlines for becoming compliant. So there is a process for ensuring that countries can't simply free-ride uh, as members of the ITI club without complying with its rules. There has been criticism that the process needs to be more robust and that there are some significant resource-rich countries like Angola, for instance, who remain outside the ITI. Uh, there's certainly scope for strengthening the initiative, and we obviously need to persevere with anti-corruption reforms in other areas, because if those anti-corruption reforms were to be successful, we we wouldn't, of course, need an initiative like EITI in the longer term. We we must recognize that it's an interim solution. Now, if governments of of natural resource-rich countries are not able to meet EITI standards, there is a new U.S. law, which was passed last July, which is expected to have a pretty huge impact in terms of promoting transparency, providing the rules for implementing it are not watered down. Uh, And this is the so-called Dodd-Frank legislation. Uh, It's called the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act, which was passed last year. And it requires all oil, gas, and mining companies who report to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to publish all their payments to foreign governments. Now, that law will apply to hundreds of companies, including 90% of the world's largest oil and gas companies, as well as eight of the world's Uh, 10 largest mining companies. So we think it would be excellent now to see comparable measures introduced in other major financial centers, especially the UK, and the publish what you pay coalition uh, with TI's active involvement is engaged in that task. So let me now try and conclude uh, with some observations about the success and failure of anti-corruption efforts. Uh, Some of you here were present at the 14th International Anti-Corruption Conference which convened in Bangkok last November. Uh, I think there were 1,000 delegates from more than 137 countries. Uh, And in its final declaration, I I felt it made a rather sober assessment, uh, especially in in, in one area. It concluded that the achievements of anti-corruption agencies across the world had been varied and somewhat limited. There have been success stories, yes, but generally, uh, we need to recognize that uh, there, there are problems here. And it also bemoaned the fact that time and again, when anti-corruption agencies are progressively active, enforcement results in vested interests becoming increasingly affected, thus creating very powerful adversaries. Nuhu Ribadu, the former chair of Nigeria's Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, was acknowledging a very painful truth when he once observed that when you fight corruption, It fights back. In several countries around the world, we have seen anti-corruption reforms fail to deliver what they promised. And the gap between rhetoric and reality is pretty huge. Now is this because the global anti-corruption movement has greatly underestimated the ability of deeply embedded corrupt networks, often operating in league with organized crime, to frustrate and roll back? anti-corruption reforms. Civil society and the media, we, we often say, are the catalysts and driving forces to raise public awareness and mobilise public support to stop corruption. But what can you do in countries where the space for civil society is increasingly being restricted and the media is being muscled? Now Some of TIA's national chapters around the world are increasing, increasingly being threatened And intimidated by governments who have become very fearful of TI's influence and effectiveness and that's a challenge which our movement needs to face. Uh, Some other questions that I'd like to raise but I will not attempt to answer them because I do not know what the answers are, uh, are firstly that the fight against corruption often has to be waged across several fronts simultaneously. However, Most countries have got limited resources and capacities, and that means that tough choices have to be made about prioritizing between different anti-corruption reforms and also in terms of how they need to be sequenced, because sometimes you can't do everything at the same time. Now, the question I put is, have we learned enough from our failures in the past to appreciate those constraints? Because we still find that there is a tendency to think that you can actually introduce anti-corruption reforms overnight and that there's a magic bullet uh, to deal with with many problems. Secondly, have anti-corruption reforms failed in some countries because overly ambitious promises were made and a failure to deliver them then greatly undermined public confidence in the commitment of political leaders to actually implement genuine reforms? And finally, have anti-corruption reforms been ineffective in some countries because the reforms were piecemeal and uncoordinated with no accountability for their implementation or because reforms relied too heavily upon the law or too much on enforcement and that led to repression and abuses of enforcement power and that in turn led to the emergence of more corruption or because durable institutional mechanisms were not established to sustain reforms after political champions of reform demated public office or because there was a failure to involve civil society and the private sector in the reform process. So I hope that we'll have an opportunity to to address some of those questions in the course of our discussions today, and I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much.